This is Daniel Monkey Roberts, and you're tuned to KPCR LP 101.9 FM in Santa Cruz. This is the Punk Rock Broadcast. Today on the Punk Rock Broadcast, I've got Eddie from the classic punk band, The Vibrators, on the show today. He's going to be talking about what it's been like touring over the years, some of his influences, and definitely we'll dive into his songs that he thinks you need to hear. Right here on the Punk Rock Broadcast... Yeah. 
frustration It's such a hard to train the little game is frustration I break down up, I gotta break it down, yes For me it's plenty trouble Though my double parts are clear enough But I, I see it up all up right down I'm gonna bring it down, yes We gotta break down I gotta bring it down, yes Oh, mom, can I go out of I want to fix for me I'll give up the ghost before it gives up me I wanna load it up the crowd I know I won't be paid off Give it a shot, I'll live up I'll live up every night I'll bring it down, yes We are back here on the Punk Rock Broadcast on KPCR 101.9 FM. I'm your host, Daniel Monkey Roberts. And today on the show, we've got a lot in store for you. Classic punk tracks and Eddie from The Vibrators sharing with you his influences over the years and what made The Vibrators The Vibrators. You may or may not already know that coming up this Saturday, March 4th at the Catalyst Club in Santa Cruz, folks, get ready. Fear, the legendary punk band Fear with singer Lee Ving, is coming into town. They're going to be playing a show with some local bands Sized Up, Curb Creeps, and Antisocial, all doing a benefit for Derby Park, you know, the skate park. So, uh, yeah, they'll be raising money to expand the skate park. And, uh, yeah, that's taking place this Saturday at the Catalyst Club. So be sure to check it out. Go to kpcr.org to get more info or, uh, you know, just stroll down the street and go over to the Catalyst and say, give me some tickets, man. got Eddie with me, one of the 
founding members of the legendary punk rock band The Vibrators. Uh, The Vibrators rose up from the ether of the punk movement in the UK in the 1970s. Came around in, in what, Eddie, 1976? Yeah, we, we started in 1976, February 1976, and we did our first couple of two weeks and we did our first gig I think supporting the Stranglers at uh, Hornsey College about a fortnight later so uh, we didn't hang about we got cracking and then uh, then we just carried on from there just trying to play and do as much as we possibly could I mean we didn't set out to be a punk band because that that kind of thing didn't exist then you know we just set out to try there were so many um, you know bands like Genesis and things that were doing like half hour songs and dressing up as flowers and that whole prog rock thing had got very silly and very boring and all the good rock and roll bands like the faces and stuff had disappeared and we just wanted to go out and make a lot of racket and a lot of noise and play some rock and roll and do something that was a bit exciting you know it was only probably you know eddie and the hot rods and dr feelgood around doing anything like that at the time so that was probably the style we wanted to get into and go around and play the pubs in london and that kind of thing and of course, punk happened very soon afterwards, and because we were of that ilk, we were right in amongst it all. So we kind of invented it in a way, rather than uh, jumped on any bandwagons or things. Yeah, definitely. And it, it's you know, it's but funny because like tracks like like Automatic Lover sound like they, they have the sound from that era, but it's totally different from the other stuff, and still is is classified as as a punk song, which is is kind of interesting. Yeah, I, I, well, I think when, when punk started in 76, 77, all the bands were just trying to do, make exciting music and do short songs and uh, get back to that kind of feeling that, you know, that you got when you first saw bands like The Faces or The Who or The Beatles or Rolling Stones or Chuck Berry or Little Richard, you know, from the 50s and that kind of thing, you know, because that was drifting out and going away. And we wanted to get back to doing that and... Uh, you know, uh, you know the the Damned and the Stranglers and the Sex Pistols and the Jam. You know, we're all very different styles of band, but it was all kind of under the punk umbrella. And uh, you know, that's what I thought was exciting about it. You know, American bands when they came on the scene, you know, like Blondie and the Ramones, again were very different to each other, but they all had their own individual sound, and they were all really exciting and really good stuff. You know. Yeah, definitely. And, and so, like. When you guys kicked off, you were pretty quickly on tour with with Iggy Poppin in 1977. Was what was that like to go on on tour with with Iggy Pop back then and, and just kind of be be doing the whole tour thing in those days? Yeah, it was it was very exciting. I mean, part of the reason we got on that was because we had gone to Berlin in uh, early '77. We had a friend who was a German, and he said, "Why don't you come to Berlin? I've got a rehearsal studio." and you can do new songs and get a different perspective. So we thought, yeah, let's get out of London, go there, set up, do rehearsals and write an album in Berlin. And we did that. And then they were playing, because we were there, they were playing stuff on the radio, you know, which was ours. And uh, David Bowie and Iggy Pop were hearing it on the radio. And uh, so that when they came to pick a band to do the support slot for that, you know, we fitted in perfectly because... uh, Iggy was on CBS Records and we were on CBS and we were up for doing it. But of course, every other band that was going at the time wanted to do that tour, but we got it. And um, we were using, to produce our first album, a guy called Robin Mayhew, 
who'd been the, the live sound engineer for um, David Bowie when he did all his Spiders from Mars stuff. And he was called Robin Mayhew, and his company was called Ground Control, you know, as in Ground Control to Major Tormal and all the rest of it, you know, on Space Odyssey. And so they knew each other, and so we kind of got, in, got on very well with them. It was a brilliant tour, you know. I mean, it was really exciting. I think from Iggy Pop's point of view at that time, it was kind of shit or bust for him. I think he kind of thought, oh, dear, I've got to get this right and do really, really good tours. And, of course, for us, it was just a fantastic learning tour, you know. The guys in their band were really nice to us, and you know we got, we, got, we never got a long sound check, but we'd get ten minutes to get set up and everything, and run through half a song before the, the audience came in. So we were looked after okay every night, and they had was it Hunt and Tony Sales playing bass and drums, and I remember up in Manchester um, we were playing there, and I think it was Tony Sales said, "Oh, we were." Um, do you know where my other guys are? I said, I don't know. We're just going out for something to eat. You know, do you want to fancy coming to something to eat with us? And he said, oh, okay. So he came out and had a Chinese meal. We said, well, I better shoot off and uh, do the sound check. And we said, okay, we'll see you there in about half an hour. And uh, he went off to do the sound check. And then when we come to get the bill, he paid for all our dinners, which <laughs> I thought was very nice of him. Oh, that's so, a... you know, they were really nice guys and they really looked after us and we got on very well with them. Awesome. So awesome. no complaints or whatsoever. You see so many times support bands saying, oh, they were horrible to us, you know. But they weren't. They were really nice. And it was a really good, fun little tour to do. Cool. Got us about as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I imagine so. So I think to talk about getting getting you guys out and about. Um, I think, you know, the first time I saw the Vibrators play, and, and mind you, like, I've only recently started balding. That, that gives me my age, gives my age away a little bit. But, uh, you know, I, the first time I saw you guys play, I think it was in 2001 in Los Angeles in a record store called Headline Records on Melrose Avenue. And oh, right, yeah. that, do you guys, do you remember that? Was that just like kind of a, a blip in, in your memories of playing live? I'm trying to remember. Uh, what was it called again? I think it was called Headline Records. Headline records. That doesn't ring a bell, but I do remember Melrose Avenue. Yeah, some some record store there. Oh, in we've Melrose. done quite we've done quite a lot of gigs there. I don't remember playing a record shop. Was it a record shop? Yeah, it was just this like little punk rock record store actually. Like totally oh, right. narrow place. But I was just I was blown away that you guys were playing. Like, what? No way. this is the vibrators. What are they doing here? So just... <laughs> But we well we we just play anyway. It's I mean it's a good fun thing to do to play small places and big places and and you you know you don't want to lose um, sort of contact with the audience and stuff. You know I mean one of the great things about playing punk gigs is you finish the gig, you come out, you have a beer, and you talk to members of the audience and they say, oh, hello guys, nice to see you, blah blah blah, and you have a little chat with them and and you get on with people. You don't have all that sort of you know stars rushing off getting in the car and being whisked off to the hotel or any of that stuff. So you actually get to meet the people that are buying the records and coming to the shows, and you can stop and have a chat with them. Yeah, I mean, we did we did a show like um, like that down in I think when we were playing in um, in Brazil in Sao Paulo, and the guy booked us in to do an acoustic thing. It was a little tiny club that held about 100, 120 people, and the PA and everything was utterly useless. And they gave Knox this acoustic guitar that he could barely hear. And we're thinking, oh my god, this is this could be really iffy here, you know. But we'll we'll give it a go. And so we kind of did about a half-hour set all acoustically, and um, you couldn't hear Knox's vocals at all because the PA was crap, but all the kids were singing every word to every song. So we had like 100 kids all singing every song, and we're just playing them and going, this is great, this is really good fun. And, you know, that was one of your, you know, one of your memories of, 
of a really fun gig, you know, because normally if you're cranked up loud, you can't hear people singing. But of course, they were singing every song and we could hear every word. <laughs> it was brilliant. <laughs> and I think like there's actually, uh, you guys had a, a live album come out a few years ago of um, a recording you did in New York City at the, the Bowery Electric. And you can kind of oh, yeah, pick yeah. up some of that from there. How was that? Oh, it was great. I used to, we used to really like playing Barry Electric. I don't know if you've ever been there, but it's on kind of two levels. You've got the audience that there's a set of steps down and there's a, uh, there's a lower level where the audience are, where the stage is, and the stage is about three foot high. And then at the back, halfway up, there's another level and you get the audience up there. So it's banked up like a, a football crowd. And we always used to sell out. I used to get, I don't know, 250 people or something like that. It was packed out. And it, was, it was great fun playing there. And they had a really good PA. And our friend Bob Ardry uh, got in um, a, a um, you know recording guy to record the shows there, and so we did did that there. He's also recorded one which was uh, the last tour we ever did in um, with Knox a few years back, 2012, I think that was, and we played in Brooklyn, and we've got that. We found that he he recorded that, and we managed to get that put out, and uh, hopefully that will be coming out on CD. I think you can get it on, online from um, Cherry Red Records. But, it, it, you know, we hadn't listened to it for a few years, and we thought, hey, this sounds really great. We should try and get this out. So, uh, yeah, it's cool. We've always done quite a few live albums, and we don't mess about and patch them all up in the studio and fix all the errors and things. What you get what you, what you get on the album is what you got on the night, you know. None of this spending six months in the studio putting all the vocals in tune or anything. If they're a bit out of tune on the night, they're a bit out of tune on the record. But I think, apart from a couple of drum mistakes, I think it's a, it sounds fantastic. You know, Knox is playing, he's absolutely brilliant on it. And he's singing. So, uh, yeah, it's very, very good. Very cool. Yeah, you don't... You don't uh... Yeah, you don't you don't get that nowadays. You now have like bands going in and recording with thirty six producers and stuff like this. It's really not so genuine. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, I'm a drummer, and you don't get drummers playing much on records these days. You get machines. They go in, press a button, and uh, here you go. We made a record. You don't have to have anybody go in there. Maybe somebody might sing some, but uh, whether they can sing or not is another matter. Oh wow, are you they saying... just put all the vocals in tune with the uh, auto tune things and all these computers and stuff, and it's direct. You know, I mean, I just can't stand all that kind of stuff. Are you, are you saying that like are you saying like drummers are becoming antiquated in the in the recording industry? Oh yeah, I mean, how many records these days in the top twenty have got drummers on them? Huh. Yeah, I don't listen to the top twenty probably, music. Probably so I don't one know. or two. I mean, you know, there's a few rock bands that still go out and play, but you know, your average uh, sort of Kylie Minogue or someone or uh, Katy Perry or someone like that. There's you know, there's no drummers playing on those records. That's all machines. That's all computers. Man, yeah, that, that's that's a real shame. But yeah, yeah, um, I mean that's why they're kind of soulless and boring, you know. But it, it, it's um, you know, it's what you like. They had a program on the telly about Blondie the other night, and I really love Blondie. It was just when they first came over and they were playing, and Glenn Burke, what a great drummer, what a fantastic drummer, and they had such a wonderful feel and a sound. And when they did all those the original things, and then they got Mike Chapman producing them and did the songs with uh, drum machines, Heart of Glass and stuff. And of course, you know, whereas they were selling 60,000 copies, now they were selling 6 million copies. And, you know, to me, they're much worse records. But, you know, it's what you like, isn't it? <laughs> well, it's also understanding the, the kind of quality and the emotion that's behind there as well. I mean, there's got to be some, some extra emphasis and feeling that you get from actually hearing a, a drummer play oh, on a yeah. track versus out of these drum oh, machines think, and everything else. 
Yeah, I mean, you, you, if you go to see a live show and it's got a drum machine, there's definitely something missing, you know. I mean, it, I don't know. I mean, there was a famous show in London that I think it was Madonna did where she dropped the microphone and the vocals carried on, which was a bit <laughs> embarrassing. Yeah, I, I can never see that happening to, to the vibrators in any form whatsoever. I mean, maybe, no, you know. if the microphone gets dropped, the, no, the vocals stop. <laughs> <laughs> you've got to do, you've got to play, you've got to go out there and you've got to do it live and you've got to communicate with the audience and you've got to, you know, and that's the great thing about the punk thing is you just communicate with the audience and then when you go out afterwards, you can have a beer with them and a chat with them and they say, oh, I like that new song or, you know, we like this one. Oh, why don't you play that one off of that album? And you say, oh, yeah, okay. And then the next tour, you can think, oh, yeah, we've got all, about five, half a dozen people wanting to hear that song and you put it back in the set. You know? So I, I think that's really a nice thing with the punk is that you can just talk to all the people and meet everybody. And you, when you go back to, you know, different towns, different places, you, you know you're going to get some of the same people come down and you meet them as friends. And that's a really nice thing, I think. What were some of your favorite places to go on tour? Like, which just like your top three venues to go and play? Oh, um, when we first started, I think it has to be the Marquis in Wardour Street in London. Okay. That was nuts. So it was completely crazy. It used to, I think they had a capacity of about 350 and they used to get about a thousand people in there. So it was just insane. So that, that was always really a really good place. And, and we've always done very well in Berlin. And in fact, my daughter lived out there for about eight years. And so, you know, it was every time I went and played in Berlin, I used to go and see her. But we always had great shows in Berlin. But that's partly because we moved out there. And like I say, when we did the V2 album, we wrote a lot of that out there and got to know people out there. But, you know, just going everywhere, everywhere you go is, is like an interesting thing. If it's the first time somewhere, it's new people, new places. I love it. I used to really like touring. A lot of people get bored with all the driving and... Uh, especially in America, because America's so big, you know. Yeah. I mean, if you go across Europe to go from London to Berlin, it's only about a 1,000 miles. And that only takes you from uh, New York to Chicago or somewhere, you know. <laughs> and you've still got another 2,000 miles to go to get to, to, yeah. to L.A. or Portland or whatever. But uh, I, I, I've always enjoyed playing America and seeing the scenery and things. And some of the towns there are fantastic. I, I always really liked uh, New Orleans down there. Possibly because it's a bit more European than uh, some of the other countries, but uh, they've got lovely old buildings and things. There's a nice vibe about the place. Yes. And I, I think also, like, when you when you tour in Europe as a band, I think bands are just kind of treated a little bit better than they are in America, or, or is that my experience? Yeah, I think that, I mean, in, in Europe, it tends to be a different way of touring because of the, it's a smaller place. The the, um, the venues will put you in a hotel and they'll provide you with a meal and all the rest of it. And in, in America, you, you have to get your own hotel, which usually has to be on the far side of town because you're leaving in the next morning at sort of 10 o'clock because you've got an eight-hour drive. And all that kind of thing makes it a bit more difficult. And, of course, when you go around Europe, you've got all the different cuisines in France, Germany, and Spain, and what have you. So you get different kinds of food, and that makes it all interesting. And like I say, because of Europe is so much smaller, and the countries are all close together, you know. I mean, you know, any one of your states in America, even the really small ones like Delaware, are probably almost as big as England. <laughs> You know, when you get to Texas and it says uh, it's 1,800 and 
70 miles or something across Texas. And you're thinking, oh, my God, you know, it's almost like London to Moscow. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, true, true, true. It's a little bit different than driving from, say, uh, Blackpool to, to Birmingham or something like this. Yeah, I mean, that's only about, uh, that's about 180 miles, so it'll take you about yeah. two and a half, three hours. <laughs> It's a, it's a doddle. But, it, you know, it, it's interesting going to all the different places. I mean, I, I think we, I worked out the other day, we played in 38 different countries. And, uh, you know, when we started out, the chances of you playing in Eastern Europe and playing in places like Moscow and United Arab Emirates were non-existent. But, you know, we ended up going there. And we've probably played in more countries than most other bands. Wow. And we've done lots of tours in South America, Australia, New Zealand, and like I say, all over, every country in Europe, pretty much, apart from the really small ones. We've never been to Iceland, so there you go. That's one that we never went to. But you know, the rest of Europe, we've been everywhere. What, what's the punk scene like in, in UAE? You said you played out there. Um, yeah, we did a couple. We did a couple of shows out there. We played in the hotel for a few nights, and then we did. Um, they have. They used to have a festival called Ok Rock, which is the October Rock Festival. It's at the end of Ramadan, and we played there with um, Doctor Feelgood and oh, is it John Otway. I don't know if you've ever seen them, but they were they were great and they were good guys. And it was a really nice, fun festival. It was nearly all sort of expats, English people that were working out there that came to the show and stuff. You had a few Arab people, but not that many. So it was pretty much kind of the Western workers there that came to the shows and things, but it's a, it was an interesting country to go to. Yeah, I imagine so. That's, that sounds really crazy. This is the part of the show where I want to get to the six songs that are most important to you, Eddie. Are you ready? All right, yeah, I've got my little list here. Hang on. <laughs> yes, go on. All right. So first up on your list, you picked from the classic band, The Kinks. You really got me. What brought this song onto your list? Um, that was one of the first records... The first record I ever bought was probably in 1958 or 59 was Lonnie Donegan, uh, My Old Man's a Dustman. And he did what at the time was called Skiffle. You know, it was kind of like it was kind of like the punk rock of its day. It was kind of like a bit like Rockabilly in America, but it was the English version of it, you know, done cheaply with the... Uh, and that was great. But then when I heard the Kinks in 65, I think it was, you really got me. That blew me away. That, you know, the guitar riff and it was snarling and the wonderful vocals of Ray Davis and the fact that they lived you know a couple of hundred yards up the road from my grandparents in Muswell Hill so it was made me and everybody in Muswell Hill said oh those Davis boys you don't want to be messing around with them you know they're in a band and of course it's back what that's great (laughs) I loved it and uh, I think I still think when you hear that record on the radio today it is just fantastic the sound on it and the way he sings it and everything, and lots of people have covered it, and nobody's ever come close to what the, the King's version was. It's wonderful.
Second on your list is a song from the Yellow Submarine album by the Beatles, All Too Much. Yeah. Oh, it's just, it's the it's the last song in the film. And I just think it's completely brilliant. I mean, it's just a big mess of noise and all kinds of stuff going on. And of course, everyone goes on about, you know, uh, Lennon McCartney, and they were great and they did great songs. But when you go through George Harrison's songs, especially on the later albums, he very often had the best song on the album, even though he only had one song. He very often had the best song on the album. You know, on the White Album, he had uh, While My Guitar Gently Weeps and something on the Abbey Road. And I think possibly All Too Much is about the best thing that the Beatles ever did, which is saying something, because everything they did was pretty damn good. And this song has uh, kind of some elements to it that, that sound a bit like prog rock. Am I wrong? Yeah, it's a little bit. I, I threw everything in, threw the kitchen sink in when they when they recorded it, without a doubt. But I, I like all of that. But it, it, you know, it's uh, the lyrics and everything are still pretty good. And yeah, it kind of follows on a bit from you know, all you need is love, doesn't it? Which is actually on the album. I think that comes after it on the album. But I like that album. It came out in England as an EP or a double EP. But in America, you had it as an album with all the the. Um, I've got the American version with the 12 inch album with, uh, with all the instrumental stuff on the B side. But it is a great album. In England, it came out as a double EP with sort of four or five songs on each EP. your list eddie you picked the faces had a real good time now honestly i never heard this song before you you sent it over why'd you all oh, right 
Um, I was just a big Faces fan. I went to see, in fact, I went to see the Kinks supported by the Faces at a gig at the Lyceum in London, and uh, apparently Dave Davis was ill and couldn't play, so the, the Faces got bumped up to headline it. And uh, they were just brilliant, and I went to see them loads and loads of times, and they put out that album, Long Player, and had me a real good time. It was just about summed up my life at that time in the early 70s, you know. <laughs> went out, have a few drinks and just had me a real good time and uh, they were just brilliant fun to go and see. I think they were one of the best fun bands you could ever go and see. Whenever you went to see The Faces, you always came out with a smile on your face and you were a bit drunk and you were a bit tired and you probably missed the last bus home and had to walk but you didn't give the monkeys, you know. Sorry, voodoo child, slight return. Let me let me do that over again. Apologies. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. There you go. I'm not cutting this one out. You're gonna hear it as it is. So I I did say that wrong. (laughs) You're not the only person to have said that. They had it on a quiz show once, and a really highbrow quiz show, and he said voodoo chili, and everyone's going, "Oh no, it's not." Wow. Okay. Well, now I don't feel so bad. Thanks, Eddie. But yeah, why'd you pick the Jimi Hendrix song? Oh, because he was a genius. I think that album is wonderful. And uh, he changed the whole sound of rock and blues and everything with his guitar playing and his singing and, uh, and, and the lyrics and everything. I mean, I grew up as a teenager and when he burst on the scene with um, Hey Joe in 66 and then 67, the first three albums, everybody just went, what is this? We've never heard anything like this. I mean, the top guitar players in England at that time were sort of Eric Clapton and Jeff Beck, probably. And then suddenly Hendrix came on, and he was light years ahead of everyone else in the sounds and everything he made. 
And I think uh, that album, Electric Lady, then is great. There's a few songs on it that perhaps aren't up to that, but uh, Voodoo Child on the first side and then Voodoo Child's Slight Return, I mean, it's just apocalyptic. I've never heard anything like it before or since. It stands out as a unique thing, or just the his guitar playing and stuff is just sensational. So this is where we're going to ask everyone to turn up their radios really damn loud and hear this Jimi Hendrix track. Yeah, wake the neighbors up and annoy the neighbors. <laughs> Here you go, Jimi Hendrix. <laughs>
Okay, now we're back, and um, the fifth track you've picked here on your list for today is uh, the Ramones. Today, your love, tomorrow, the world. Yeah, I think I, when that came out in um, 77, I think it was, wasn't it? Or maybe the end of 76, uh, we heard that uh, as just a mind-blowingly great album. And that's the last track on it. And you think, well, what a way to end it. You know, it's, it's very clever. And I saw the Ramones when they played in London in 76 and they just blew me away. You know, they were so exciting. Short songs, everything was snappy. Joey was a great singer. And then Johnny had a different way of playing the guitar to everybody else. He wasn't trying to copy Hendrix. He thought, right, I'm going to do it differently to everybody else. And he came up with a different style and format. And they were just a wonderful band to go and see and uh, listen to. And I think their albums are great. I think they're one of the best American bands of all time. Them and The Doors. I like The Doors a lot, but I only saw them once, unfortunately. So you mentioned, what what is the thing about the the Ramones guitar playing that, that hits a chord with you? No pun intended. Um, it's just that he he didn't bother doing lots of elaborate Weedley solos, and it was all just straight ahead, three you know two minute, two and a half minute rock songs, and it was just full on in your face, bang! This is what we do, and it was I loved it. You know, they were a fantastically exciting band. Just you know, just uh, Johnny Ramone at the front, legs apart, guitar slung low, and whamming it out and I think you know I was talking to Knox about it and what he used to do was do all down strokes he didn't go up and down on the guitar it was all down strokes so you've got to play you've got to move your hand twice as fast to do the same thing but it does sound a lot more exciting I, I, I heard somewhere that he, he copied that from um, that style from Led Zeppelin's Communication Breakdown and if you listen to the riff at the start of that and goes but it's all done with down strokes Whereas if you do it up and down strokes, it sounds less punchy and less in your face. And so he copied that, and, and that's what gives him that sound, just doing all down strokes on the guitar. He's great. I love the I love so one of my favourite bands. I mean, the only thing I would say is we've toured America loads and loads of times, and you listen to radio stations all around America, and they never, ever played the Ramones. And then every time we did a tour for about four or five years, one of the Ramones would die, and it was the only the time that he ever heard the Ramones played on American radio was when one of the guys died, and he thought, oh, why don't they play them when they were alive? They might have made more money, and they might have been more successful, and they might not be dead, but anyway.
going to have the CBGBs in there, be a little uh, candles and flowers and everything outside, you know, a little memorial thing for uh, whoever it was that had died that week. Going, oh my God, I hope this is not going to be us next week. <laughs> you guys actually, the vibrators had the chance to play CBGBs. Oh yeah, we played there ooh, probably 10 or 12 years on the trot, I think. And we were going to do the last ever show and then they got a stay of execution of a fortnight and they put a load more bands on and uh, Patty Smith ended up doing the last ever show. But yeah, I love playing there. We, we did a couple of live albums out there. We did a live DVD that they filmed and everything and a live CD that was before that with different players. So yeah, I'm really happy to have played there. I mean, the toilets were left a bit to be desired, but uh, the on-stage and, the, um, and the, uh, the PA and everything and the audience was just great. It was just a wonderful place to play. Would you tell people to go there and buy shoes or not today? Oh, in the shoe shop there, yeah. Well, it's just up the road. Now I tell them to go down and go to the Barry Electric because that's just it's about 100 yards down the road or maybe not even that, maybe 50 yards down the road. So go there and they go. And, they, and when you go in um, where the CBGBs used to be, it's all closed and they go, oh, you know, this was the site of the legendary CBGBs and home of live music and everything like that. And you think, well, why didn't you keep it like that? If you bought it and it was such a great place, why didn't you just keep it like that instead of turning it into a bleeding clothes shop? Anyway, uh, everything changes in the world. So uh, true. Yeah, kill your darlings and carry on. Yeah. One of my favorite tracks that you just happened to pick as your last song today is "Stranded by the Saints." Yeah, yeah. Well, they played in London. They came over from Australia, and I saw them at a club in London. I think it was the Nashville, and they were just great. It was just very similar to sort of what the Ramones did in your face rock and roll kind of thing. They hadn't been influenced by them because they came out around about the same time or earlier. And I think I saw them in '76, so they wouldn't have heard the Ramones at all. And he thought, wow, what a great, exciting band, you know, just going in there and playing in-your-face rock and roll. And then when the single came out, I just thought, this is great. You know, it's just a wonderful record. In-your-face rock and roll, done on the cheap, you know, proper band, playing live, and it, it, it works. It's very, very good.
today um, before we, we wrap up the interview, but why the vibrators? Why did we call it the vibrators? Oh, yeah. God. Well, we, we sat around, we had a meeting around, we used to rehearse in the garage, packed, you know, where Dad kept his car, he'd get the car out and set all their gear up and rehearse in his garage at the bottom of the garden. And um, we thought, oh, we've got to have a name for the band because we had this gig coming up in the fortnight with uh, the Stranglers, and we've got to have a name for the band. And we sat there and we went through all these names and, you know, we were going to call it Terry Lean and the Trousers and then I was going to be, no, Pat was going to be polystyrene and not John wanted to be Jack Offlock. We had all these silly names and I think the Royal Family was another one. And then John suggested the vibrators because, you know, that's what we're going to do. We're going to vibrate and shake things up. And... And they all laughed and thought, that's really silly. Yeah, everyone will remember that. And so we got stuck with it from then on. <laughs> and even today, you know, some radio stations are dubious about playing it because they don't want to say the name on the radio. But, uh, you know, it's it's all about, you know, that's what music is, isn't it? It's vibrations. And so that's why we ended up being called the vibrators. And, of course, it, it's wonderfully memorable and everybody never forgets it. You know, when they see the band, oh, I saw the vibrators. Yeah. And for a little while, we even had their own line of uh, the vibrators, vibrators. So there you go. Uh-huh. So I, I'm guessing those are collectibles now. You have to look on eBay or something. Yeah, probably. Yeah, they used to come in a little coffin-shaped tin with a little history of the band on the back. Keep your girlfriend happy. <laughs> I'm definitely going to search for that. Not to keep my girlfriend happy, but, you know, just yeah, uh, as sure a fan. Yeah, I'm you can keep your girlfriend happy even without one of those. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, maybe so. But you know, actually thinking about it now, the Stranglers and the Vibrators—that's an amazing S and M show. Yeah, yeah, it was. Well, all the bands had funny names like that every time because they wanted to stand out. You know, like the Damned and the Vibrators and the Sex Pistols and the Stranglers. You know, everyone had kind of in-your-face names that weren't sort of you know fluffy and nice. So uh, that's just the way it was. Then everyone was thinking along the same lines, but just doing a different, doing it all in their own way. What do, you, what do you got lined up for 2023? Well, like I say, I'm playing locally with all these bands, and I'm still kind of keeping a, a toe in the, in the vibrator stuff. We're still selling stuff online, and uh, you know, and I've got a book that I've written about half of it, and I'll try and finish that up this year. 
and maybe find someone if they see if anyone's stupid enough to release that. But uh, yeah, it's good, good fun. Can you uh, leak us the title of the book? I haven't got a title yet. <laughs> I should be, shouldn't huh. I? I don't know. I've been offered lots of names for titles, but uh, yeah, no, I'll think of something. I don't know what. Definitely be keeping an eye out for that. Yeah, yeah. Well, Eddie, thanks a lot for joining us today on Punk Rock Broadcast. Yeah, man, it's been a pleasure. Yeah, it's been a pleasure for me. Yeah, thanks for having us, and uh, keep playing the music. Cheers, thank you. All right, well, this is Eddie from The Vibrators, and you're listening to Punk Rock Broadcast on KPCR 101.9 FM in Santa Cruz in sunny California. And uh, greetings here from cold and freezing England. Folks, thanks for joining us tonight on the Punk Rock Broadcast. I've been your host, Daniel Monkey Roberts, and uh, we'll catch you all here again next week, Wednesday, 8 o'clock, on KPCR 101.9 FM in Santa Cruz. Be sure 
to check out the KPCR website where you can get all of your favorite podcasts from the station, from your favorite shows, and uh, maybe support this fine little radio station by picking up a t-shirt. Anyway, see you next week. Thanks for tuning in. This has been the Punk Rock Broadcast.